this is Jason, and welcome to Stand By for Paradise. Everyone around me stirred nervously in the cramped plane. It is usually a relief when the engines shut down to signal the end of a flight. But on this day, after the whine of the engines died, the sudden silence was more ominous than I expected. Only a few people got up and started rummaging for their bags. Everyone else just sat there in silence. Normally I am that guy who still looks like a 12-year-old on his first flight as I crane my neck and try to see everything I can out the window. This time though, I held back a few inches, pulling my face out of the midday sunlight falling steeply through the tiny window. Almost immediately, it began getting warmer in the silent plain. Inside, it was still the same white and gray interior of the plane that had left Germany. Outside, as far as the eye could see, was the dust and brown air of Sudan. I could hear talking at the front of the plane. A short, bearded man stepped into the aisle and held two aerosol cans aloft. Looking straight through the people standing in front of him in the aisle, he pressed down the nozzles on both cans and started walking briskly toward the back of the plane. Everyone edged back into their seats as he approached, hissing lines of insecticide streaming from each hand like miniature contrails. As he passed, we all instinctively pulled our shirts up over our faces. Coughing and sniffling followed his passing all the way to the back of coach. It was a strange and unwelcome feeling to land in a country most Westerners think of as inhospitable and dangerous and then be treated like we had brought dangers with us. Judging by the looks on the tense faces around me, most of the passengers still thought the dangers lay outside our plane. In most airports I have visited, it is impossible to see the real country from the tarmac. A wide verge of terminals, concourses, and customs halls keeps you nestled in the bubble of no man's land that is the international travel network. In Khartoum, this was not the case. Our plane had nosed up against the only terminal building and passed the guards with AK-47s. Only one line of glass doors separated us from what looked to be a very different world. Next to us on the searing black pavement stood a pure white plane with only the letters UN on the tail in that characteristic bland utilitarian font. It was 2008, and the horrors of war that would descend on the people of South Sudan were still many years away. I wasn't sure if I should be comforted or concerned by this symbol of international intervention. Any reminder of the Western world seemed welcome, but in my experience, United Nations vehicles usually don't show up to garden parties. The toxic cloud of bug killer had settled. A few purposeful-looking men worked their way down the aisle to the front of the plane and out into the blinding sun. I looked back out the window at the tarmac. Past the UN jet was a more unnerving sight. A small airliner stood on the scorching pavement, but it was not going anywhere. 
The nose gear was completely missing, and whatever career this plane had lived, its last trip brought it down here in Sudan. I wondered if it was here for a quick repair, or whether the landing gear had been donated to keep another plane in the sky. Past the end of the black tarmac stood one massive red and white radio tower. Looking out beyond it, everything blended into a universal brown. A small cluster of office buildings huddled on the other side of the terminal. In every other direction, the land with its few sparse trees gave rise to a dizzying patchwork of adobe walls and buildings, all of which matched the soil they were made from. Above it all stood the sky, lighter but still the same brown. Only looking straight up did a customary blue begin to soften the monochrome world I had dropped into. I looked back at the glass doors of the terminal. Women in burqas could be seen moving behind the darkened glass. A procession of men in loose white robes moved back and forth around our plane, pointing and yelling to one another. No one wore the safety vests, ear protectors, and blue cargo pants that ramp workers the world over seem to universally wear. Our Lufthansa cabin crew, all trim, blonde, and Hollywood German, reemerged from the galley at the back of the plane. The stewardesses looked tense behind their iron smiles, pressed gray vests, and colorful scarves. In the sanitized world of travel, we are not used to seeing emotion from airline attendants. Even the slightest tension can prove contagious. For a long time, nothing happened. It was now stiflingly hot in the plane. I don't remember any announcement telling us to keep our seats, but everyone had done so instinctively. At last, the cabin door closed again. Moments later, the engine spooled up, and soon a burst of cold air cascaded down from the tiny vents in the ceiling. As our plane pushed back from the terminal, you could feel the tension release throughout the cabin. We were not getting off the plane in Sudan today. Novel and foreign as a trip to Ethiopia might have seemed to a Midwestern boy like me before I left the States. Somehow Addis Ababa represented safety and comfort compared to sitting here under the eerie, tan sky of the Sahara. Taxiing out to the lone runway, I wondered about the divides between cultures. Normally, travel is about unity, crossing boundaries, reaching out across borders. Here, though, for a few minutes, our little group of Westerners had seemed like a drop of balsamic vinegar in a plate of olive oil. It had felt as though no amount of mixing could emulsify anything out of these two cultures. Climbing above the city, I looked down into the patterns created by the walled yards of Khartoum. There was no geometric rigidity of the suburbia I'm used to. The walls and houses simply became more sparse and the courtyards larger until eventually they gave way to the endless desert. As we gained altitude and wheeled above the city, the shadows of the walls became lost in the hazy air. Soon, we were swallowed in the featureless brown haze above northern Africa. 
suspended in space with no horizon and only the faint blue above. There was no sensation of movement. The earth below had faded into nothingness. The whole episode felt like accidentally getting off the highway in a rough neighborhood you don't know. I was troubled by the deep sense of unease that had washed over me as I looked out at that plane sitting nose down on the tarmac. And that got me wondering. Had there been any real danger, or was it all just fear? How much prejudice from both sides had clouded even the most routine interactions? How much history was there that I did not know? I was the only member of our party who had not made this flight before, and I had been told that even this stop in Khartoum was to be taken very seriously. A string of thoughts followed each other through my head. Everything from Orwell's 1984, to Samuel Huntington's clash of civilizations, to the news coverage of America's military interventions in the Gulf. Did societies really need enemies? Who is really responsible for the failed states spread across the world? Are people actually so different that it was impossible to find enough common ground to stand on? I would like to think of myself as a savvy, culturally conscious traveler, but I found no clear answers to these questions as we pushed further through the endless tan sky. We had left a few passengers on the ground, but it seemed the cultural baggage we carried was still firmly on board. Hours later, the sun eventually began to sink. As we flew steadily down the Blue Nile, I fell asleep, 40,000 feet over a soon-to-be-divided land I could no longer see and now knew I barely understood. This is Stand By for Paradise, a little podcast written, produced, and recorded by me, Jason Fleming. Find out more at standbyforparadise.com. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you on the next episode.